um, how human beings, let's say, imprint themselves and pattern themselves around relationship, we're looking at a variety of influences. And so when we look at the most important influence, of course, it's the moment you are being born and then how you're being treated. And I'm not just talking attachment. I know everybody's like very much into attachment theory these days because, you know, uh, psychology, like any other area, has like fads. You know, we were all into the vagus nerve. Then we were all into trauma. Now we're all into attachment theory and we're probably going to move into something else um, eventually. Um, but... Um, there's a variety of imprints that we look at when we look at what happens in relationship. And so one uh, imprint we have to look at is the people who raise us, of course, are the people from whom we learn actively as well as passively. We're always learning either by being taught something, which we learn through repetition, of course, but we also are learning through resonance, meaning we pick up all kinds of things uh, empathetically as well as any other way, so that um, our bodies learn from other bodies. And so there's mirror neurons, there's all kinds of things to consider that uh, make it such that when we grow up, we are learning by imprint, by resonance, and by actual uh, creating habit patterns. So with that said, um, our first really interesting aspect of, let's say, resonating and imprinting is when we individuate. Many of you will know this if you're coaches or therapists, but I'm going to put this in the context of what we're doing here. So when we individuate, um, it's a very interesting moment in human development where we go from essentially being the center of our universe to understanding there's us and other. This is, of course, also you know, discussed in all kinds of spiritual um, theories. But for the sake of what we're working with, there comes that moment. You're born. You're, of course, one with everything. You're one with your mother. Everything's um, happening. And then um, as, as you grow, you understand that you have a body. They have a body. There's interactions. There's things that are happening that make it such that there is not um, that oneness, let's put it this way. So when that happens in, an, in the individuation, one of the things that happens is there is sometimes one, but sometimes it's many, many events that make us feel like there is something not right. That's the best way to very easily describe it. Because remember, you're born, you're the center of the universe, um, you know, everything revolves around you, you cry, you hopefully get fed or not, but you know, that's where it starts. And then eventually there comes a moment where we are cognitive enough that something happens where we go, whoa, I'm not okay. But because we're still so centered on our own situation, we often, more often than not, make that mean that we are not okay. So people have certain behavior patterns that have to do with something having happened where through their lens at one and a half or two years old, they go, I'm, I'm not okay and I must be wrong. You don't have what it takes to go, oh, 
you know, my mother just was super emotional and flew off the handle. And that's actually not my problem. It's her problem. You don't have that. So a lot of the early imprint happens when we start behaving in ways to cope with what we think is wrong. And our persona, often how we behave, whom we choose, whom we choose as partners, how we make money, is all connected with what we think is fundamentally wrong with us. And that's a really interesting thing to look at because um, you know, the, the coping is not only bad, it's also good. So I'll give you an example. Um, well, let's just say this is a classic, right? Uh, let's just say you have an alcoholic father and um, you are uh, you know, just minding your own business and there is an incident where your father is, let's say, drunk and you, I don't know, spill your tea and he flies off the handle, right? And which is rather horrible. And it obviously isn't you uh, and the tea, it's the alcohol and you know, the general behavior. But in that moment with one or one and a half, you're going, oops, I must have done something wrong. I'm wrong. And then the behavior gets such that on one end, you become hypersensitive to emotional mood swings to protect yourself up front. And then on the other end, you'll develop some coping behaviors that become your personality. So maybe um, somebody goes very funny and happy and helpful and um, you know, always, always being there for daddy and doing good things and being a good boy or girl, you know, things of that nature where you become very good. Or you, of course, flip the other way and you figure it doesn't really make any difference. So um, you're just going to act out and act out and act out. Right? So these are the patterns that happen to most humans at some point. For some, that's very severe, like you know, with uh, more abusive situations. But even the, the most subtle situations cause those behavior patterns. And then these behavior patterns are, of course, carried forward into relationship. And very often when we choose partners, we choose partners based on trying to avoid that while also subconsciously looking for that. Because the really difficult aspect of this is that whatever kind of attention we get at that helpless age is considered love. Right? And that's really tough to reckon sometimes because while our adult self goes, that's not love, that was abuse. Right? Our, our young self, the part of us that had to kind of brace, goes, oh, I get attention, that's love. And so often in the choice of partner, we have this push-pull of not wanting something, but somehow still making some kind of happening around that based on old imprint patterns. And that's a really interesting thing to work with because when you, and this is, you know, sometimes you hear this with like inner, um, you know, inner family constellations and things like that. People talk about that. When you can identify the young stunted parts of yourself and how they've chosen certain things, then um, you can actually grow those parts up or tell them they're safe, so to speak. That's where often inner child work comes in as well. Or you can make different choices as an adult that are not 
connected with that. So that's like one aspect of what happens and why we pick relationship in a certain way. And a classic pattern there is that people pick somebody to, to um, let's say, complement their coping pattern. So you have somebody who is very helpless and somebody who's very competent. Or you have somebody who's very stable and somebody's very unstable. You have somebody who um, is very passionate and the other person is very you know, kind of stable and not passionate. And, and it works great because there is a counterbalance and they are not X. Right? And then over time, of course, as the relationship progresses, one of two things happens. Either they turn into X you know, or the other person goes, well, I chose you because you're safe, but now I feel actually you know, safe and you are boring. That also happens, right? <laughs> a lot. And it's like, wait, you picked him specifically because he, he posed no danger. Yeah, but now I want him to grab me by the hair and drag me to the cave. It's like, <laughs> yes, but that's not what you picked him for, right? So there is a lot of that happening where, where um, relationships go really you know, odd because things have changed. Another thing that can happen that's very common is people get together and, you know, things are kind of unexamined simply because there wasn't enough accumulation yet for stuff to show up. This is particularly true with trauma. And then at some point, you get to the point where you go, oh, Ugh, I had trauma. Or you might not even have known you have trauma and it, it shows up. Or you've known you have trauma, but you didn't understand your impact, the impact on your system. And suddenly, a um, very common one is somebody no longer wants intimacy or somebody no longer wants relationship in a certain way. And then suddenly, the entire relationship has to shift because the old ways of fitting together no longer fit together. So that's one aspect of what's happening. And then, of course, uh, we talked about epigenetic imprints, which are essentially coping patterns that are passed down, not only through the behaviors that we uh, assimilate from our parents, but also the coping that comes from generations. You often hear there's people who are, you know, there's generations of people with addiction issues or generations of people with, um, you know, comfort eating or not eating or things like that. So these things are being passed down epigenetically as well as behavior patterning. And so when we look at resonance, I don't know if you know that when we are born, um, we have inherited our mother's breathing patterns, for instance. And you're based by the neurotransmitters of your mother in your growth phase. So that's an imprint, for instance, right? And then there's, of course, the imprints of seeing your parents interact in relationship. Oh, you weren't here on the first night, so let me say this. So in epigenetic research these days, they have discovered that on the outside of the DNA, not the actual DNA, which is genetic, right? But the, on the outside of the DNA, there are these things called methylated chains. And the methylated chains turn on or off gene expression. Because at any given time in the body, this can also happen with pollution or things like that. Um, 
genes can turn on or off and then certain things happen or don't happen. And so those methylated chains turn on and off gene expression and these methylated chains hold the information of previous generations, um, you know, not only traumas but also experiences and coping patterns and things like that. So they have now, I think in mice, traced it down like 10 generations. So a mouse born 10 generations after the generation that had the trauma still reacts to the stimulus of the trauma while never having experienced it. They did it with smell, I guess, uh, where when a, when a mouse smells something that caused uh, great distress to the ancestor still has a stress response even though nowhere in that mouse ever has their NAP, and it's not a mouse-specific, uh, you know, stress scent, so to speak. I'll, I see, I just want to finish that. So with that said, um, the traumatic experiences of our ancestors live in our bodies in one way or another, but they found in the research around that that actually all the things that are considered shamanic practice are things that alter gene expression, so that alter the methylated chain. So all the things like the you know ethnobotanicals, rituals, uh, rattles, drums, very strong rhythmic movement or nonlinear movement, um, or a combination thereof, prayer, smudging, all of those things actually in its proper application have the ability to alter that uh, that you know information. So you can actually work with trauma in these ways as uh, you know, shamanic and indigenous cultures have done for you know, millions of years, essentially. So that's an imprint, though, that we are often, you, know, you don't necessarily think that whatever your great-grandmother experienced is still affecting you, but it can. And what's interesting, of course, is that in our, like in our lifetime, most of our ancestors had one or two world wars in their system, right? And if you come from other parts of the world, you might have had more even than that. And for some, you know, this is still an ongoing issue. So that heavily influences behavior, health, expression, and with that relationship. So we have epigenetic, we have uh, familial, we have the resonance of how you see your parents interact and then you have the imprint as your interaction. And then of course there's also things like attachment patterns. And, you know, it, I mean, it's endless. You can slice this every which way. And it's interesting to slice it every which way because you'll see that there's commonalities. Then there's some divergent information, but mostly there's commonalities. And when you come down to neuroscience, you can really see how certain behaviors affect certain parts of the body. So, so there's all of that, epigenetic, familial, um, your individuation imprint, so to speak, the way your parents were in relationship, did they, because that's how we learn about relationship. We don't learn about relationship um, the way we learn about, I don't know, driving a car or math or, you know, learning an instrument. Essentially, we are kept from the skills of relationship till we actually have relationships, sexual and otherwise. And there's no school for that because, of course, it's also not age appropriate to teach people, let's say, sexual skills till that's appropriate. But there's also no school for good relationship. And so very often the only 
schooling and the only habits we have when it comes to relationship is what we've seen. And that's, of course, often not, you know, the best modeling. Um, for no other reason than, you know, humans are imperfect and it's nobody's fault. It's just not so good sometimes. With all of that said, we have that whole, so to speak, ball of wax, right? Now you're getting into relationship and you meet somebody and there is that X factor, of course, of what, what makes you attracted to that person. But it's, and there, there is that, right? There is that magical, mystical, beautiful quality of that moment. But within that is also the lighting up of certain, let's say, uh, switches that come from those imprints. And uh, I, I always make this joke that, you know, people, when people come to my office, they go, oh yeah, we've known from the first moment that we were meant together. We met at this party and, you know, we, uh, we met at the, whatever, the drinks at the bar. And I looked at him and he looked at me and I, it was like, we've known each other from another lifetime. And it's like, yes, that's your childhood, right? <laughs> <laughs> we have a... It's another lifetime in this life, right? <laughs> because we have, these re we have these resonance where something fits into the imprint. They've done this study uh, where they've looked at when people start kind of hitting their, let's say, familiar pa familial patterns. And so <laughs> this, is, this is kind of, a, it's an interesting study because they did it on people who just get together the conventional way and they did it with people who had arranged marriages. And so the people in the arranged marriages had the first seven years of having to just get with the fact that they were with somebody they didn't know, but had fairly <coughs> decent, and, and if, they, if that worked, right, had fairly decent and interesting relational explorations. And then around year seven, their familial patterns hit while people who had conventional relationships started out with the familial patterns being hit, which happens typically around you know, two years in. And then by year seven to 10, they had kind of worked it out. And so the theory around that is that the people in the arranged marriages just took that long to make their partner who didn't have the imprint display the traits of the imprint. Yeah. And you can see that because you can see that you suddenly turn into another person, so to speak, as a result of your partner seeing you or treating you in a certain way. And so you can entrain somebody into your imprint and you can also just have found somebody who has that imprint. They've done studies uh, on the markers of successful long-term intimacy and the number one marker of successful long-term intimacy is generosity. And generosity, I once said this to a client, and he goes like, what, Tiffany earrings every other week? <laughs> no, not gifts. <laughs> generosity, as in extending praise, is one of the big ones, right? Because most people become very operational, meaning they constantly only... Um, complain or correct behavior. And so the counteraction to that, of course, is praise. 
and it's the kind of praise that your partner wants to hear, not the kind of praise that you want to hear. What I mean is that what happens very often amongst humans in intimate relationship as well as other relationships is we tend to get very process-oriented, meaning we want to correct wrong action. Right? So you, nobody or, or very few people go, wow, thank you, you took the trash out. That is amazing. I feel so good. I came home to the, the kitchen being clean and the trash didn't smell, right? That's typically not what happens. It's like, oh, nice. Anyway, and then three days later, it's like, why didn't you take the trash out, right? So it's typically a lot of correction of um, perceived negative behavior without any of the positive reinforcement of positive behavior. If you have dogs, um, somebody was asking me out there how many I have at the moment. I have eight at the moment. Yes, they're tiny, though. That's my excuse. So, and they're all very decrepit. They're all... That's my, that, that's, my, that's my excuse, is they're all very decrepit. Um, they're like 12, 13, one-eyed, blind, three-legged, and they're all small dogs. And I typically try to give them the last couple of years of their lives as something positive. But so when you have dogs, side note aside, um, you have to constantly reinforce positive behavior. It's the only way you get a dog to actually positively behave. So you don't, you don't just you know, scold them when they do something wrong. You have to praise them when they do something right. And it has to be immediate feedback. And so when it comes to relationship, we tend to... Um, we don't even correct immediately, we correct in the aftermath very often, right? It's not like, you know, the trash smells and you go, ah, that smells horrible, right? That's not typically how it goes. It's like after the fact, I don't know why every time when I come home, you know? So, so that, that's very unconstructive feedback. You know I've done this, right? So, <laughs> um, so it's unconstructive feedback, right? So it's either in the moment negative, like correction of negative behavior, or it's, uh, it's also praising positive behavior. So that's what I mean, is that um, if you can get into the habit of positively reinforcing the things you like about your partner, positively reinforcing um, good traits, things, things you love about them, um, you know, you, there's always this old joke where, where the, the, one, the woman and the couple goes, you never tell me you love me. And the guy goes, well, I told you. And she goes, when? Well, when we got married, you know. <laughs> so, and, and that's still supposed to last, right? Because it hasn't changed. I love you as much today as I loved you three days ago. Why do I have to say it again? Because of the pathways that light up the dopamine and so on and so on, right? So positive uh, behavior and positive praise is something that when you can reinforce as well as acknowledge goes a long way towards relationship, goes a long way towards error correction as well. Because then it's not only, no, you did this wrong, it's also. So now you were asking, can you praise somebody when they're very negative? No, not directly. You don't go, oh my God, it's so amazing how you always remind me of the trash, right? <laughs> You don't necessarily do that or go, oh, I love you, after you've gotten B 
beaten up, that's reinforcing abuse. But what you could do is, if you are, if you have to be very masterful, is when somebody throws a total fit, you could praise them for something unrelated. Right? You can go, God, you look so good when you're that angry. Right? <laughs> you're beautiful with the spit flying from your mouth. And I mean, I mean, so what, what, what I mean by that is you would have to break the state. That's what that is. It's a state break. It's not an actual compliment at that moment. It's a state break. You flip them out of whatever pattern they're in by doing something that's both funny and positive. Well, anytime you do something because you want something, that's manipulation, right? That's, that's not to say that that's not something that we need to do on occasion, meaning... Um, if I get here and I have to, um, you know, uh, get my key from the receptionist, I essentially will be nice so I get my key, right? But that's not necessarily manipulation only. That's also just, let's say, common courtesy and how humans react with each other, right? So I would say there's a level of understanding that a, a, a give or a take of certain, let's say, like I said, human decency has to be done regardless if you feel like it or not, right? Because otherwise you're outside of what's acceptable for another human. Because just because you feel bad, they shouldn't have to feel bad, right? So there's that. Then there is the generous praise as a means of um, conveying love. So, and what that is, is essentially that feeling of the upwelling of wanting somebody to be happy. So that's not manipulation, that's a gift. Now, if you go something like, I know what I'm going to do, I'm going to tell him how great he is, and then he's going to buy me a new car, that's manipulation, right? But typically we know the difference, and I'm not, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm assuming most people have an innate sense of goodness and they want their partners to be happy and well, right? Um, and typically we can tell it's, we are being manipulated because it doesn't feel right. So you have to just learn distinctions around that. There's also a slight chance that somebody isn't manipulating you, but you have what, uh, what my teaching partner and I sometimes jokingly refer to as you're missing a chip, uh, meaning you don't have an imprint of that goodness. Right, that's also an option. Sometimes when people praise you, you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's not because they don't actually praise you, it's because you don't have the receptor to receive that praise. So those are distinctions that um, you can only learn when you can feel your own body, which is why we always do somatic practice with it. And then you can go, oh, this feels nice, and it's freely given and received. Oh, what do you want? That's manipulation. Or, oh, I don't, this doesn't even sound real. It's, when you go, this sounds fake. That's typically you don't have a receptor for it. So those are important distinctions. It's a good question. Thank you.